Hey there, I'm Joanne Tambrakis, and this is Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Unfiltered conversations, or as I like to say, opinions shaken, not stirred, on what's changing and what's not in business and in life as we enter into the next normal. So pour yourself your beverage of choice, and let's get to it. We have a very special guest today. He is a marketing strategist, an entrepreneur, an investor, an advisor to emerging companies, and he's the best-selling author of 12 books, including Fanocracy and the New Rules of Marketing and PR. He has spoken on seven continents in over 40 different countries, teaching people how to use new real-time marketing strategies to help spread ideas, influence minds, and build business. And now he's here on Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Welcome, David Meerman Scott, to the podcast. Oh, hey, thanks, Joan. Thank you so much. I am not having a martini at the moment, but um, I'm feeling great to be here. So thanks for having me on. Thank you. Excited to have you here. You know, I was thinking about, I first met you not too long after I left corporate in 2008, which sounds like a hundred years ago now. And I was trying to, it does, right. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And you were speaking at NYU, but I was not yet teaching there. And it was not too long after the um, new rules of marketing and PR came back, came out. I do remember being completely taken with your whole conversation. I bought the book. I did introduce myself to you that day because it's kind of my thing. And then fast forward to 2013, and I learned so much from that book. It really just explained everything to me that was changing that I didn't understand because my background was in traditional. And then when I started teaching at NYU in 2013, I needed a book that gave some sort of an overview. And most of the books were, as you would say, full of gobbledygook. Um, <laughs> it's one of my favorite words that you use all the time. It's I a wonderful it. word, yeah. <laughs> it really kind of encompasses it. And um, I thought it was perfect to use in my classes, and I still use it. So there you go. Um, I appreciate that um, very much. And I remember when we met and... Um, it was a di- 2008 does seem like what is like 100 years in Internet life, right? Exactly. Um, it's a really, really, really long time ago. And what's interesting to me, however, is that the strategies in the new rules of marketing and PR have not changed. Um, many of the tools have, but the strategies haven't. Um, so I have to constantly update that book. It's in the seventh edition now because there's so many new things that are out there in terms of ways to reach people. Uh, But the basic idea hasn't changed. And that is that you don't have to go through the media. You don't have to spend money on advertising. You can reach people directly, which is what you're doing right now with your podcast. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I, and that's another thing that I love about it is that you do update it every couple of years because yeah. things become out of date so quickly in, in, in marketing. Yeah. Industry. I mean, um, the last time I updated it was, uh, it came out last year and, um, Google plus was canceled, you know, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. And the next update, which I'm actually starting to work on now, um, um, I need to include clubhouse. So there's always something, you know, there's always at least a couple of different things that have changed and I'm always adding new stories as well. So that it feels timely and yes. interesting, interesting examples. No, you do a great job with it. So I always like to start my podcast with asking my guests where they are from. 
Ah, well, the way I would answer that is I'm from all over. (laughs) Um, I um, uh, was born in the Boston area. I lived in Long Island, New York. I went to um, my high school years in Connecticut. I moved I did my college in Ohio. I moved to New York City. I lived in Tokyo for seven years. I lived in Hong Kong for um, two years. And I've been in the Boston area for a couple decades. So I kind of think of myself as being from all over. From all over. And you get to travel all over when we can travel again. I haven't been on a plane for a long time, but hopefully (laughs) that'll start soon. Yeah, I've been to 107 countries. I love it. You know, it's it's fun to travel internationally to speak, but it's also fun to travel internationally just to see what's out there and interesting places in the world, interesting people to meet. No, exactly. So, you know, I've used your LinkedIn summary as an example, especially when I'm talking to people about personal branding (laughs) um, and they're trying to make sense of every setback that they've had. And it begins, and I quote with, I was fired, sacked. (laughs) My ideas were a little too radical for my new bosses. So I started writing books, speaking at events and advising emerging companies. So I guess my question to you is, how exactly did that happen? Because it sounds a little too easy to go from one to the next. (laughs) Uh, Well, first, before we even go there, I do want to rant just a minute about how horrific most people's LinkedIn profiles are. I mean, they are just brutally awful. I have news for everyone listening here. Your LinkedIn profile is not a resume. Your LinkedIn profile is a place for you to share who you are in a way that makes sense for you. And the the vast majority of LinkedIn profiles, I think, um, are bad for a really particular reason, and that is that they're written in the third person. Uh, And that's because resumes uh, or CVs, if you want to call it a CV, are written in the third person. Uh, And a really simple, simple change is simply to take your um, your LinkedIn profile and make it first person. So rather than saying David Meerman Scott is a marketing strategist, you say I was (laughs) fired. (laughs) And that that meant that I had to figure out what the hell I'm going to do with my life. And this is what I decided to do. That's way more interesting. The other thing that I do in that profile, which is important to think about, is I add conflict. Um, when an old writing teacher of mine told me that um, writing without conflict is propaganda. And so if you have a LinkedIn or any kind of writing, but we're talking about LinkedIn profile where there's no conflict in it, it's propaganda. So if you're talking about yourself without the conflict, it's propaganda about yourself. So what I chose to do in the opening three sentences that you read, Joanne, was I chose to introduce conflict from the very first words, the first three words of my LinkedIn profile. I was fired. Oh, that's an unusual uh, opening statement for a LinkedIn profile. You know, the, it was it's first person, it's conflict, it's it's vulnerable, it's weird. And, you know, I, I, I bet you're the, you know, you're the several hundredth person to mention my LinkedIn profile to me. So um, it's something that people resonate with. But um, so I think that that's a really interesting approach to how you can get yourself out there, not just on LinkedIn, but in any ways. Um, uh, use conflict. If you're writing about yourself, 
like this, you know, try using the first person. Um, so yeah, I was, um, I, I spent the first part of my career in the financial information business, companies like Thomson Reuters and Dow Jones. Um, and that's, um, I worked in Asia for a company called Knight Ritter. And so my mo most recent job, the company I was working for was acquired by Thomson Reuters and um, Thomson Reuters is, loves to acquire companies and then they love to, to fire the management team. So, and I knew that was coming. It wasn't a surprise, but no matter what I, no matter what I did to show that this was back in 2002, which is a really long time ago, 19 years ago, no matter what I did to show that marketing has changed and here, are the, and that was pre-social media. So it was about mm -hmm. creating websites with tons of content on it. It was about um, using press releases as a way to reach our customers and potential customers, not just as a way to reach the press. These ideas were too radical for them. And so um, I lost I lost my job. And that was the best career move I ever made was losing my job. But it was because these ideas that were totally working, by the way, and almost free <laughs> um, and generating new business for the company um, was not the kind of marketing that that they wanted to do. Um, and that was that, that was so interesting to me that the can you guess? Actually, I'll ask you to, to guess, Joanne. OK, ask me a question <laughs> outside of salaries. Mm -hmm. What was the largest line item in, in my marketing budget? Not the, not by my choice, but by the company's choice. Can you guess? At that time? At that time, 2002. I would guess it was print. I would guess it was print. U.S. postage. U.S. postage. Good old direct For mail. Direct mail. And I'm like, this is not right. <laughs> Why would we spend ridiculous amounts on direct mail when we can create this crazy awesome website that the search engines will find and that we can educate our buyers in the way that they're now using to learn about things. Uh, and so that's why I was a little bit too radical and that's why I got fired. No, but I remember that time and that would can be considered radical at that time. You know, there's a lot of, in, in, in those types of organizations, it was this thing might go away because again, 2002 was after the, the dot-com bust and, yeah, it was it was at the very very tail end of the of the yeah, beginning of the bust exactly. Yeah, so maybe this internet stuff isn't really going to be a thing, and we don't have to pay attention to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can we we're we're fearful of it because we don't understand it, so we might as well just continue to do what we've always done. Yeah, exactly. So obviously, you've written a whole book about the new rules of marketing and PR. Um, and it's a wonderful book. If anyone doesn't understand it, that's listening to it. I can't re recommend it enough. But if you had to, how would you explain the key differences to the uninitiated? So the old rules of generating attention are that you had three choices. You could um, bug the media by trying to get them to write or broadcast about you. Um, you could buy your way in by um, spending a lot of money on advertising, you know, direct mail, uh, billboards, um, um, television, radio, newspaper advertising. Um, or you could bug people one at a time by hiring salespeople to cold call or knock on doors or 
have a retail store with lots of salespeople in it. Um, and I'm not suggesting that any of those are wrong. Um, if spending a whole lot of money on traditional advertising works for you and your business is growing like wildfire, I, I'm not telling you to stop, keep doing it. Uh, or if hiring an expensive public relations agency and, um, and trying to generate attention through the mainstream media is working for you. That's awesome. Keep doing it. Um, but most people tell me that spending money on a huge sales force to cold call or spending money on television ads or spending money on um, trying to generate attention with mainstream media does not work the way it used to. So the new rules are that you generate your own attention. You generate attention by creating a great website or um, creating interesting content in many forms. You know, we're doing audio right now. This is a one form of content uh, or video or um, images or uh, all kinds of other ways of reaching people or and or using social media to reach people. And um, for many organizations, those kinds of ways to generate attention, which, by the way, are free or nearly free, work way better than the ways that traditionally have been used. Thank you. Thank you. So, you know, lately I feel like a lot, there's a lot of what's going on is what's old is new again. It's, you know, you look at things, I, I watch Walmart and now they're doing streaming live video on TikTok and you can purchase within, which sounds great, but it's, to me, it's a, it's a new iteration of what was QVC and home shopping network, right? Because mm. you've been able to buy in real time in, in, in a respect there. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. Um, you know, I'm okay with, um, uh, with valuable information that then leads to a place where people can learn more and ultimately, and ultimately make a purchase. I'm totally cool with that. You know, if somebody um, uses a social network to provide something of value and then from there you have a link to learn more to buy something where it becomes annoying is when it's not um, ex when it's not expected or when it's not appreciated and it just twists into the realm of that's just an advertisement that's wasting my time. Um, and because that generally will look bad on a brand, you know, if, if every time you go to Facebook, there's an advertisement for a certain car brand that pops up and annoys you, that's ultimately a negative. It's not a neutral, it's a negative for that car brand. Um, but if there's something that pops up, even if it's paid, and it's valuable, then that's not a bad thing. And I'm okay with it. Okay. All right. Cause I do see, you know, I, I think, and I, I'm sure I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I see so much of using new technology and applying old rules to it, you know, using that. Well, I, mean, I think, I think there is a lot of that because I think that, um, especially brands like you mentioned Walmart, but especially big brands with massive budgets, you know, tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising budgets. They have to spend it somewhere, <laughs> right? I mean, what are you going to do? Give it back to the bosses? Oh, I'm, you know, I know I'm in charge of advertising and thank you very much for the $30 million budget. I only need 5 million. Here's your 25 back. No one's going to do that. They're going to no figure out ways that. to spend it. 
Um, and the problem is that in many, many ways the, that it's spent is not that appropriate. So you have said, and I quote, that the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of superficial online communications at a time when people are hungry for true true human connection. In today's digital first world, we all have an opportunity to rethink how we reach and involve people to create those powerful connections that build fans. Can you talk more about that? Sure. So um, um, that, that's one of of my favorite quotes in in our book, Fanocracy, by the way. Um, And about five years ago, I was, um, uh, I was with my daughter, Reiko. She's now 28 years old, and she's now an emergency room doctor at Boston Medical Center, wow. um, first-year first resident. Um, and at the time, she was in early in, early in her med- medical school um, experience. And I was talking about how, on one hand, I was starting to get frustrated with social media. I was starting to get frustrated with the ways, you know, like you just talked about the ways that brands are reaching out to people. Um, and, um, and at the same time, I was so fascinated by how passionate I was with the things that I'm a fan of, whether that's live music, specifically the Grateful Dead. I've been to 804 live concerts in my life, 75 Grateful Dead concerts. So I'm, you know, hugely passionate about live music. Um, or in fact, I think you wrote a book. I think you wrote a book on, on the Grateful Dead. I, I wrote a book called Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead, yeah, <laughs> um, with, uh, with Brian Halligan. He, and there's three of us wrote it. Brian Halligan, who's the CEO of HubSpot, and Bill Walton, the NBA Basketball Hall of Famer. Um, who's the world's biggest deadhead, not only because he's seven feet tall, but because he's seen 850 Grateful Dead concerts. Um, but we were ta- I was talking to my daughter, Reiko, and I said, you know, on one hand, there's all this superficial online stuff going on. But it, on the other hand, I'm a massive fan of the things I love. I love to surf. I love live music. I love the Grateful Dead. I love... Um, camping, you know, these things I I just really love. I'm a huge fan. And then she started to talk about what she's a fan of. Um, She's into really into K-pop, Korean pop music. She's really into um, uh, Harry Potter. Not only has she seen every movie multiple times, read every book multiple times, but she wrote her own 85,000 word novel length alternative ending to the series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the order of the Phoenix and put that on a fan fiction site. And it's been downloaded thousands and thousands of times. So, you know, we, we just geeked out at that. We're the, we're fans of things. And so we decided to co-author this book, Fanocracy, turning fans into customers and customers into fans, which was super fun to do because, you know, I'm a, middle-aged white man who loves the Grateful Dead. Reiko is a mixed-race millennial woman who um, loves Harry Potter. So we, we're, complete, <laughs> we're completely different, but we had the same ideas of fandom. So it was a really, f- and, and, you know, be, writing a book with your daughter is a wonderful experience. But, but interestingly, I would modify that quote that you read. Over the last two years, I've come to think even more strongly about that concept specifically as as it relates to the AI algorithms that are deployed by social networks, especially Facebook. So I believe that the Facebook AI algorithm is the most destructive technology ever invented. 
See, this is another reason why I like everything that you say. The, you. The, mo- the most destructive technology ever invented. Think of other technologies that have been invented. I believe Facebook's AI algorithm to be the worst. Why? Because something like half of the adults on the planet are on Facebook. And Facebook algorithm is tuned to get you to want to stay on the on the on Facebook. Um, the more minutes you're on Facebook, the more ads they can show you, the more money Facebook makes. And so because the algorithms are tuned to get you to want to stay on Facebook, they're tuned for the most polarizing content that they can serve up. They're tuned to outrage you because that's when you want to learn more and click more. They're tuned um, to serve up conspiracy theories and they Facebook algorithm is responsible for lots of the negative things that we've all experienced over the last couple of years um, because um, the algorithm drives each and every one of us into deep, dark places. And you have to resist it to not go down a rat hole of (laughs) misinformation and lies and conspiracy theories. And I believe that that's Facebook's problem. And um, you know, I think I think that that is a really, really bad thing for humanity. And I don't advertise on I, I use Facebook. I'm a consumer of Facebook. There's a group I really like that I go to most days. I almost never use the basic Facebook to communicate with my so-called friends. Um, and I, I almost never post on Facebook. I certainly don't add, I don't want to pay them any money. I don't advertise on Facebook. I sold all my Facebook stock several years ago. Um, I just believe it to be incredibly destructive. You're not the first person I've heard who say, who has said that. And, um, I, I'm not a fan of Facebook either. I I can't even find anything to love about it. I can I have a love hate relationship with Amazon, um, <laughs> but I can't find anything to love about Facebook. And um, I agree with you 100 percent on 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 what is what they have done and what's going on. But you're not the first person I've heard that has literally gone so far as to say I'm going to sell my stock. I don't even want to own stock in this company. Yeah, um, I mean. Uh, yes, twi- the Twitter algorithm has elements, uh, some of the same elements, as does the YouTube algorithm. YouTube, of course, being owned by Google. So it's not just Facebook. But I think Facebook is the worst, the, by far the worst operator in this this super destructive aspect. And, um, you know, many of the negative things you see going on right now and the polarization and how, you know, one group of people in not just in our country, um, we're both Americans, but in, in most countries, they're, you know, pitting one person and one group against another person, another group is just brutal. So how do we, how do, so, th- so here's a question. How do we then, and I, again, I'm in hundred percent agreement with you, but how do we as marketers, cause you can't really not be there. I you think you can, you I think, think you can not be there. You think you can. Okay. I do. I do. I'm not there as a marketer. Um, I have a Facebook profile. I I have not canceled my Facebook. I have a Facebook profile, but I don't market in Facebook. 
Would you, would you advise people to avoid that if you were advising? Well, the one aspect that's important is, are your buyers on Facebook? Are the people that you're trying to reach on Facebook? Is Facebook the place that they congregate? And I'm going to give you an example of that. So I'm a, um, um, I, I'm now a, 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 like a rabid consumer of this group that's for a, um, uh, these um, camper vans called a Revel. I have a, a tricked out Mercedes-Benz 4x4 camper van that I bought in October. And it's awesome. It's got solar power on the roof. It's got a 24-gallon 20, water tank. I've got a, a toilet, a shower, a kitchen, a bed that retracts into the ceiling. I can carry my folding kayak, and I can be self-sufficient um, off-grid for as long as a week. I mean, it is a fantastic machine, but it's a complicated machine. And so I'm a member of this group that has 90, I think, 9,800 um, members right now. It's a very, very active group. There's hundreds of posts every single day. And it's where I go almost every day to learn about this particular type of camper van that I have. And, um, and so there are a number of um, representatives of companies that provide products and services for this particular camper van who are also part of the group and they're required to register by saying that they are representatives of a particular company and the moderator of the group who does a fabulous job um, has particular rules about what they are and are not allowed to do. They can't overtly sell, but they can be helpful. And there's a few people on there. Um, one of them, his name is Aaron. He works for a company. He owns a company called Rome Rig, and they do um, battery upgrades. Uh, you know, for really, really esoteric battery upgrades for Revel camper vans. That's what he does. And he, his entire marketing, 100% of his marketing is just by being helpful in the group. And what he does is any questions about electrical, he jumps in and answers. And it's an amazing thing. And, um, and he's so super helpful to anybody. And if someone's confused, like he gives out his cell phone number. Give me a call. He's not trying to sell anything. But anyone who wants to upgrade their electrical system, who's the first person they call? They're going to go to Yeah. So he hasn't spent a single penny on Facebook. It's all pro just providing valuable information. But 100% of his marketing comes from Facebook. So... There are those kinds of situations, and um, I, I don't know. I don't know what you do if Facebook were to go away. He would have to figure out another way to to generate business. Um, but he's not paying Facebook. He's not right. running right. ads. He's not feeding that part of the beast. Because <laughs> he's not feeding the beast. I mean, that really falls right into one of your classic lines, educate and inform instead of interrupt and sell. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's so true. You know, you can get so much, so much better if you're educating people the way that this guy does provide being helpful. Um, you know, one of the, one of the elements that, my daughter Reiko and I talk about in our book, Fanocracy, is that you should always be thinking of 
how can you give to the universe without any expectation of anything in return? And uh, in, in, in everything you do, but as a, as a form of marketing, just, you know, what can you give to the, to the universe? Um, and again, without any expectation of anything in return. So Aaron, the guy who I just mentioned on this Facebook group for this obscure kind of camper van, um, is just constantly providing to the universe his expertise about electrical systems in this type of camper van. Um, and you are providing to the universe this podcast, among other things, because I know you do other things as well, Joanne. And, um, you know, what is, and, and I'm a guest here. I'm trying to provide interesting information. And I would love it if someone bought one of my books, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here because I want to talk with you. It's always fun. And I want to provide information. Um, so um, how can any marketer be thinking that way? And so few do. And, you know, some people will say to me, but David, we're doing that because we we create these white papers and these ebooks and we give them away for free. But then they require an email registration. And that's not providing to the universe with no expectation of anything in return. That is the opposite. That is a coercion technique that's saying we have something of value. We will give it to you. But the only way we'll give it to you is if you first give us something in uh, of value first, which is your email address or your contact information. Um, that's not the same thing. That's completely different. And so I think, you know, we ought to all rethink what we're providing to the, to the universe. And um, one of my favorite examples, we actually wrote it about in the book, Fanocracy, but Fanocracy was written pre-pandemic, so I have an update for you. But we wrote about Duracell batteries, and Duracell has a program called Power Forward. Power Forward provides free batteries to people who are the victims of natural disasters, hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, fires. And they have a fleet of trucks that physically go to places where there's been a, an extended power outage because of a natural disaster, you know, where the power goes out for a week or more. And no, I, they, I remember those trucks during Hurricane Sandy in Manhattan. Uh, oh, you do. So you remember the trucks. So, you, so you've experienced Power Forward. So Power Forward shows up and they give away batteries, no no obligation, no expectation of anything in return. You don't have to fill out a form. You don't have to give your email address. Here's what, what kind of batteries do you need? Oh, you need D cells for your flashlight. Here's two packs. Oh, you need AAAs. Here you go. Here's your batteries. Oh, you want to charge your smartphone? Hook it up to our truck. Well, you'll charge quickly. Um, and they, um, uh, when I, when I spoke with them, I interviewed Ramon, uh, Ramon Valentini, who's the, um, Head of, at the time was head of marketing for Duracell. He told me that they had given away over 10 million batteries. And I, I, call, I contacted him, got an update. Um, during the pandemic, they gave away another million batteries to first responders, um, EMTs, hospitals, and so on. Again, because, you know, running out of money, what am I going to spend my money on? You know, we got we to gotta do PPE. So he, they would just give away batteries. And this was not a coercion technique. It was totally giving to the universe. And now they've got 6 million fans on Facebook. You know, people just love them. <laughs> you know, they're talking about them all the time. Um, and if 
you remember which battery you were given, you know, you might be inclined to buy more of that brand. Of oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's, that's the kind of thing that when you're standing in the store and you're trying to decide which battery you're going to get, oh, I remember that. So I'm going to support that. And I think there's, I see a lot more of that. I know for myself that I try to support the brands that I feel are Working with purpose and not just with not just for the sake of profit. But it's funny yeah. what you said, when you said earlier about the podcast when I started this and 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 I start you know I started to get good feedback. The first thing that so many people would say to me is, "So do you have any advertisers? Yeah, are you making any money on it?" And it's like, "Well, yeah. I, I didn't start it to make money. If I do, that's great. You know, I'm that that would be wonderful. But that wasn't my that wasn't my purpose. Was right. oh, I'm going to do this? It was like, yeah, I want a podcast and." If I can offer out good content, I know a lot of people and hopefully I'll meet some more along the way. Um, I know I, I have a couple more questions for you. I do sure. want to ask you your thoughts about Clubhouse. I know you wrote a blog recently about how to use it to connect. And you put that idea in my head and I'm like, why don't I have a separate link for marketing my, mindfulness and martinis? Why don't I have a <laughs> So that's something else I'll be doing this afternoon. But um, I'm curious on your thoughts on whether you think this is going to stick because there's so much attention. Um, I think it's super interesting. And um, I think most, you know, many, many marketers have now screwed around with Clubhouse to get a sense of what it is, just so you know how it works and what it is. If you haven't, I recommend you do. Um, I um, I don't know that I'm going to do my own um, club, host my own Clubhouse group. I have participated in a number of them and I've enjoyed it. Um, it's seems remarkably intimate, interestingly, um, uh, for some reason. And I think that's really cool. Um, I, um, um, I, I do think, however, it is a time, it can be a time suck because, <laughs> you know, you've got to hang out. It's audio. You've got to hang out and listen. Um, some people tell me that they multitask on Clubhouse. That would be a little hard for me if I were participating. Maybe if I were only listening, I could do it. But if I were participating, it's hard to multitask. I need to kind of focus on what the conversation is. Um, and I'm also kind of wondering in my mind if it was if it's the perfect social network for the pandemic, where people are home, um, can't go out as much as normal, and we were all kind of eager for some kind of intimate way to connect. And this was a, um, a pandemic safe way to connect. And will it still be popular a year from now? I don't know the answer to that. I also know that every single so social network is now creating a clubhouse like app, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, usually it's hard not to be the, you know, not to be the first mover on something like this. However, you know, Facebook has enormous amount of amounts of money to throw at it, as does Twitter and so on. So they may be able to um, at least carve out a, a, a way that audio can be used within their platform. So that'll dilute a little bit of the mystique of Clubhouse. But good for the people who started Clubhouse and good for the people who jumped in early you know, there's some people who have become super well known simply because they were one of the first people in Clubhouse. Yes, that's that is definitely if when you're willing to take the risk when something something new is starting, it's definitely yeah, exactly right. Gain a platform. Um, so just a couple of pandemic-y questions here. Um, how has your pandemic-y? I know that was a word I just made up. It's, it's nothing. A nice wrong. word. A nice word. <laughs> um, 
your business, I mean, you travel, that's what you have done. How have you adapted? I, I know you've started to really help people to figure out how to do this. There's another book. There's another book. Yeah. Well, that's one thing I did is, um, is Stand that out virtual events. I wrote a, I wrote a super quickie book. Um, when the, um, the last in-person presentation I delivered as we are doing this recording was, um, March 3rd, 2020. And then everything was canceled. Um, I had probably a dozen or 20 speaking engagements that were canceled or postponed in some cases, postponed without a date where it was going to be done, or some were postponed for a year and actually now have been postponed again for another year. Um, and so uh, I was thinking to myself, oh my gosh, what's going to go on next? And then a lot, of, a lot of organizations went virtual. And I noticed that very early on, a lot of the virtual presentations were simply trying to cram their, their typical in-person event into a Zoom room and it wasn't working. So... Um, I got together with my friend, Michelle Manafi, who uh, puts events on. She's um, uh, does a couple dozen events a year. And in my case, I speak at a couple, couple dozen events a year. And so um, we co-wrote this book, Standout Virtual Events, How to Create an Experience Your Audience Will Love. We wrote it in two months. We published it through the Amazon publishing platform, which was really easy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we did a cover design, which we're super happy with. We, I got a designer friend of mine. His name is Doug Eimer to do it for me. And um, uh, you know, hired an editor to help us to edit and um, had a um, print on demand as well as ebook version of standout virtual events within a week after we were done writing it. And it was out in October And it was the first book that was written, you know, post pandemic about um, about how to do virtual events. There had been books that had been written before about virtual events, but they but they were um, different because it wasn't there wasn't the emphasis right now. Mm -hmm. And so um, it did actually incredibly well. (laughs) <laughs> given that it was a really fast, you know, two months to write research and write and a week to get published. Um, um, you know, I, I just got my royalty statement for this month and it's kind of a remarkable number of books that sell every month, even now. So I'm happy we did it. Yeah. And the, interestingly, what that did was got in, got me introduced to organizations that then hired me to speak at their virtual event. And, and, um, that was kind of an ulterior motive, but I didn't know whether that was going to actually work. And I think I've booked, I don't know, six or eight speaking gigs as a result. So that's been a, a nice outcome of doing this book. Yeah, no, I hear that that's, you know, and I believe that we're going to be doing, we'll be go back to being in person because I think there's nothing really like being in a physical room to hear someone. But I think you're going to see a lot of hybrids and more I do too. events. Um, yeah, if- I do too. I do too. I, I, I think... Good virtual events are here to stay. Horrible webinars will die uh, and, and good riddance, but but good virtual events do have a room in, a, in an in-person world. Okay, so I have one last question. And before we sign off here, what do you think, what advice would you give for someone to, in order to really be a good marketer in today's world, what would your advice be? To be a good marketer, have fun. 
Make sure that you're always focused on providing value to not only your existing and potential customers, but to the world at large. You know, anytime you're providing value, um, I'm a strong believer that 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 good things come back to you. I'm a strong believer that the more you give, the more that comes back. Thank you so much. That is a delightful way to end this podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, Joanne. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate your friendship over the last more than one decade. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note. Info at joannetombrakis.com. And until next time, remember... Whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there. <laughs>